0: Father, thank you that um, we can come here today and not just um, sing uh, songs of the season, as good and encouraging as they might be, but we can sing songs of the Savior. And in every word, almost every line, we have seen the gospel, we have heard the gospel, we have sung the gospel. I pray that we would continue to do that now as we open your word, and as we look at the span of the ages and the story of the coming of Christ into the world, and we now in this second part of this series, Why Did Christ Come?, we will explore more before we get to the actual entrance of the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us, Lord, to have ready ears. We Want to hear what you have to say, not just what a man has to say, but what you have to say to us. We will gladly hear it, and then uh, by the power of your Holy Spirit, we will respond to it. God, we know that the only way that we're going to respond is if you draw us to the Lord Jesus. So we pray that you'd do that. Now, for your glory and for our good and for the good of the nations, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. God is sovereign. That's a theological word. It just means God is in control of every detail of your life, of every detail of everything that has ever gone on. As we normally do, if you're visiting with us today, we usually use Scripture to back up those things that we say so that you will know that the things that I share with you today are not just things that I have made up, but things that hopefully have led out of Scripture apply to those of us who are here today so that we will know why we are worshiping at this time of year, Advent, the Advent, the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ coming into the world for sinners like us. So last week we started with that. Today, I want to remind you that everything and by the way, this whole four-part series that we do or we're doing at Christmas is really a, 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 an overview. I was talking with someone this morning. It's really a world view, statement of why God, from the very beginning to the consummation of the ages, Will be doing what he is doing and what is done, what he has already done. Job recognized this. Job went through a lot. Some of you know the story of Job. He went through as much as any one person could save the Lord Jesus Christ, of course. And so he was at, at, toward the end of the book of Job, he was uh, lamenting, he, he was talking to God about his situation. And the Lord reminded him of something. Now, this is going to be key for what we're doing in today's message, going all the way back to the beginning. Guess what God did when Job started asking, why am I going through what I'm going through? He reminded Job, and he reminds us today, of his absolute sovereignty over all of creation, over all of the cosmos, and over your life and mine. Then the Lord answered Job, And said, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? And he goes on. I'm leaving a lot out. You can read this for yourself later. But Job came to the place where he realized something. Nothing that God does in your life is an afterthought. Nothing that God has done in the story of redemption with Christ coming into the world is an afterthought. It has purpose and it has meaning. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Last week we said as we introduced this series during Christmas, and and there could be things added to this, I know, but I, I, I wanted to focus for you on three reasons why Christ came. Shared those last week. I'll share them again. We'll be sharing them for the next couple of Sundays. But three primary reasons. There are others, but three primary reasons why Christ came into the world. The first one out of 1 Timothy chapter 1. We're doing a series. We're taking a break from that out of 1 Timothy. Christ came into the world to save sinners. Now stop there for a minute and think about the implications of that. Christ didn't just come into the world to be a good example, to be a good moral teacher. He came to save sinners. The implications of that are huge. That means that there are sinners that need to be saved. And Christ came into the world not just to be a a picture on a postcard of a little crib, but he came into the world to save sinners. Second reason why Christ came into the world, we talked about this last week. The title of the sermon last week, I encourage you to go back and listen to it, was Truth Robbers. We're going to see a little bit more of that in today's message. But Jesus came into the world to give us truth. He who is the truth, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And there is so much deception around us. Even during this time of year, especially during this time of year, we know that Christ came into the world to save sinners. Christ came into the world to bring the truth to us. And then the third reason, and we're really going to hit this this next week, and then the following week, Christ came into the world, now listen to this, to defeat and absolutely destroy the devil and what the devil did in bringing death into the world. And you and I can look around and we see a lot going on, and we can know that in the consummation, it hasn't happened yet, we we get a glimpse of it when we come to faith in Jesus Christ and we begin to follow him. We begin to experience a little bit of that life, but ultimately he is going to absolutely destroy the devil and he's going to destroy death as well. So those are the reasons why Christ came into the world. Now let's flesh this out, three points that you see there before us. Again, this is not necessarily expository. This is a a topical sermon, and these three topics are absolutely essential. Let me ask you a question. Look at the first question there on the outline, if you would. All right, we're going to answer this question. What was the first murder in the Bible? And who was the first murderer in the Bible? Wait before you answer. Because most would remember what I would say is the first case of sibling rivalry in Genesis chapter 4. Most people, if you ask, what's the first murder? Who was the first murderer? Well, that's easy. Just go to Genesis chapter 4, and we find the story of Cain and his younger brother Abel. And they brought their sacrifices to the Lord. They brought their offerings. Really, only one was a sacrifice. They brought their offerings to the Lord. And, And the Bible very clearly says that God had regard for Abel and his offering because he brought of the flock. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard, and Cain became angry. Now, those of you who have siblings, I know that there have been times perhaps in your life where you have thought, I am so angry at my sibling. Uh, If not murder, I could hurt him really bad. And so most people would say, well, that was the the first murder in the Bible. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. Now watch this, what's happening? I, I don't think he was just speaking to him casually. This was a premeditated thing to get him to come with him into the field. When they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel, and he killed him. What was his weapon? Hmm. Do you know? The Bible really doesn't say. Now he's depicted in in some paintings, some illustrations, is holding a rock. Killed him with a rock. It could have been a rock, could have been a branch. It was not his bare hands. He didn't throttle him. It could have been, it could have been an implement of tilling the soil that was turned into a weapon to commit murder. All we know from Genesis chapter 4 is this. It was violent. It was brutal. Because two times it says that the ground opened up to receive the blood of Abel from the hand of Cain. Soaked the ground. I wonder sometimes if the Bible does not tell us what the weapon was simply so that we'll know where that kind of thing comes from. I read an article this last week, and there was a New York Times journalist. This is, this is common fare for us out there, and I, I think you know what, what persuasion that I come from, but that's not really the issue here. This journalist was saying, America, here was a quote. I, I wrote this down. I thought this would be... Good to show you what New York Times journalists are thinking by contrast to the Word of God. America needs to become like Europe in its social views. Well, that's one thing that I disagree with, and in its gun control. And here's his reasoning it would be good to head off shooting. Folks, it it doesn't matter whether it's a gun or a plowing instrument turned into a weapon or a sword. Killing is in the heart of man, and man will always find a way to kill. So, with all that, Cain killing Abel was not the first murder in the Bible. What was the first murder in the Bible? Who was the first murderer? Jesus helps us out. And so we go to the words of Jesus, and he talks about something. I'm combining two different verses in here, so you'll see where this happened. It fits into all of this. He was talking to some religious leaders, and he stopped them. Now, Jesus was, we, we usually think of Jesus as just, gentle, and meek, and he was, okay? Okay. But Jesus called it like it was. And so he's looking at these religious leaders, and they have murder in their heart. And so he says to them, you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning. The beginning of what? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We read a little bit later in the book of Genesis. In fact, if you we're, we're going to be parking in Genesis 1, two and three primarily today, referencing some they'll, they'll be on the, the screen, but we, we'll be looking at some of those things. And, and here's what God said to, to man, to Adam. In the very beginning, when creation was going on, but the tree of the knowledge... He said it to Adam. I I want you to hear that. He said it to the man. From the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. That was the command. And then he gave, here's going to be the consequence. Cause and effect. Young people, children, do your parents ever talk to you about that? I don't know that they use the terms cause and effect but they give you something to do or not to do, and maybe sometimes they'll attach a warning to it. If you do this, then. If you don't do this, then. So this is cause and effect. There's a consequence. And what is the consequence? In the day that you eat of it, what's the consequence of disobeying the command, the crystal clear command of God? What is it? Let me add to that Genesis three six Romans five twelve. So the woman, we'll talk about this a little bit more in just a minute. The woman took its fruit, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and she gave it to her husband who was with her. I'm going to come back and comment on that, and he ate. We know because Romans 5.12 tells us that at least in a spiritual sense and probably in a physical sense we will get to this. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through what? Through one man named Adam. And because sin came in, death through sin. So, I, I... I would imagine that most of you got the answer to that question. Some of you might not have, but the serpent Satan was the first murderer and Adam and Eve were her, his first victims. They chose they chose the way of the one whose way is darkness itself. And so spiritual death, separation from God was immediate. I'm not going to go into all of the the reasons why, and it's clear from this. The way that they were created, and then immediately after they ate of the fruit, things changed. They plummeted into spiritual death immediately, not physical death. Physical death would happen for Adam. Anybody remember how long after this particular event? how old was Adam when he died? 930 years later, the promise of death spiritually and the outcome of that physically would happen a long time from then, but it would come. And since then, everyone who has ever been born except for Jesus Christ has been born into spiritual death, and physical death comes to us all And then after that comes what? The second death. Now, for those of us who have been here for a while, we're we're used to terminology like that. But there may be some in, in, in this congregation today, and you're sitting here thinking, what? Spiritual death? Physical death? Second death? Hopefully that's going to become a little bit more clear to you as we move on. Because the writer to the Hebrews said it like this It's appointed once for a man or a woman to die. That's physical death. And then after that, the judgment, which for those, listen, for those who are outside of saving faith in Christ, that is the second death. First death, physical, second death, in utter condemnation. Last week, a movie star died. Anybody see news about that? A lot of people died, but they don't make it into the headlines. Kirstie Alley died at a young age, 71. For some of you in this audience, that's really young. She passed away, and so the accolades started coming in. Please, please listen to my words and my heart. I, I mean, I, I want only the best for any family that is out there. Apparently, she was a very she was fun. That's what people said. John Travolta said it, so it's got to be true. And she was funny. She was a comedian. She, she, she just had this zest for life, her children said. I've, I've always been interested when someone is described as fierce. I'm not sure exactly what that means, but they described her as fierce. Kirstie Alley was a Scientologist. As far as we know, until the day that she died... If she was a Scientologist and never repented of that particular religious cult system, she died without knowing the Jesus of the Bible. She died believing that she would come back in some form or another. And much like, now by the way, this, this may sound unkind. How many preachers are, I, I'm not trashing Kirstie Alley. Please don't hear that. I am merely saying basically what Jesus said in Luke chapter 13 when there was a front page news story that said that the, the, the people, there were some people that were worshiping and Pilate killed them and mingled their blood with the blood of the sacrifice. And then he talked about a a tower falling on some other people and killing them. And he, he told that, and he said, look, here's the point to that. Unless you repent, you will likewise perish. He was not being unkind. He was telling the truth. Luke 16, the rich man and Lazarus. Lazarus died and he was carried Apparently because he was a believer in the coming Messiah, he was carried into paradise into the bosom of Abraham, the rich man, died and found himself in the flames of the hell that now exists prior to the judgment. When he will stand before Almighty God, this was told as a true story by Jesus, he will stand before God in the judgment and he will be cast into the lake of fire. It was prepared for the devil and his angels. And as unkind as it sounds, every time you see newsworthy people who pass away, if they pass away without Jesus, that is their fate. It's not unkind. It's true. And it all stems from the first murder in the Bible, in the first murderer. Let's go on to the second point because we're going to just do a broad sweep, panorama. This is my take, okay? I'm not demanding that everybody agree with me on my take, but it, 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 it at least warrants, I think, if you don't agree, you can do your own study and tell me where you find that I'm wrong, and people have, Okay? So what about the creation of man, his purpose, provision, and his fall into sin? Sin, let's go back, back, way back to the very beginning of God's good creation. Where do you find that story? By the way, is that a myth? You sure? There are a lot of people that even in churches talk about it as a myth, a story that just kind of tells us how things came into being. Moses didn't think it was a myth, neither did Jesus. They used these events and other events like Jonah and and other events like the flood as real historical events. So, we go back to God's creation, Genesis 1 and 2. And let me just say this. However you want to interpret, all right? However you want to interpret each day of creation, where it says there was evening and there was morning one day, And then the next and the next, it says that about all six days of creation. So however you want to interpret that, everything was created in six days. And I'm saying if you want to interpret it as a literal 24-hour day, if you want to interpret it as a period of time, everything was created within that one to six time frame of creation. Now, Genesis chapter 2, what's that all about? Simply this, Genesis chapter 2 is just an expansion or an explanation of the creation of man that happened on which day? The sixth day. With all of the livestock and all of the things that went on, it happened on the, in the sixth day. And all, all about Adam naming the, the, the animals and all of that, that all happened, again, no matter how you want to view the sixth day, as an age or as a lit I, I choose the literal 24-hour period of time. And all of that in Genesis chapter 2 happened. He names the animals, talks about the garden a little bit that he was given to till, and uh, then he talks about how Eve was created, how woman was created out of man. The first wedding took place in the garden, okay? All of that happens in chapter 2. Now, here's what I want you to see. At that point, I'm talking about the end of the sixth day of creation. There is nothing in the Bible that says anything about death or pain or decay or futility. None of that after the end of the first day. In fact, when you get to the end of that first day, God steps back and he looks around and he sees everything that he has created at the end of the sixth day. And he says, not just that it's good, like he has said about all of the other days of creation, he says, it was very good. Now, here's why I... We have to see what, what the serpent did and how all of this came about, why Jesus had to come into the world. End of the sixth day, and we've got a perfect situation for Adam and Eve to be living in. There's another thing that drives me to that particular interpretation. Literal 24-hour day, he does all of that stuff. You get to the end of the day, and there you are. Because, why do I believe that it was very good? At the end of the sixth day, which if it was very good, I think that would exclude the pain and the suffering, death, decay, rot, mildew, all the rest of that. Are those things good? Please don't say yes. <laughs> those things are not good. So I don't think it fits with what Paul, what, what is proclaimed in the first chapter of Genesis. By the way, what is the eternal state going to look like? In the eternal state, will everything be made right? Yeah. And guess what? Right now, there is pain and suffering and decay and Alzheimer's and cancer and all the rest of that. But in the consummation, the new heavens and the new earth. Look at this. The first heaven and The first earth have passed away, here's what's going to happen. And however you view that, here's the time between the sixth day and the consummation of the world. He will wipe away in that, in the consummation, in the new heavens and new earth, every tear will be wiped away. Death will be no more. Aren't you glad that that's not going to be a part of the heavenly existence? Neither shall there be mourning. Why? Because there's, there's no need to mourn. There's no crying. There's no crying nor pain anymore. No longer will there be anything that is accursed. That means that between Genesis 1.31, when he declared, God declared everything good, and the consummation, that there was something that came in called the curse. Are you following Okay, So we find in this wonderful end of the sixth day, whatever you choose to to see that as, that Adam and Eve were unbroken and untarnished. They had purpose. They had work. The work that they had was without toil and pain. Every provision was met perfectly by God. Now, I find this fascinating, that with all that could be said about that, by the way, you know they didn't need clothing at that point. And sometimes, you know, people, people, kids will giggle when we get to the end, they were naked and unashamed. They, They didn't have a reason to be ashamed because they were innocent that's that's the whole that's the whole key of of that picture and so they were in that place and again I find it very interesting that listen to this not only the animal uh, the 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 Adam and Eve but also the animals were vegan did you realize that I know I've I've said that before but some of you may be here and you kind of Well, I, 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 I like a good steak, but there were no steaks in that time before the fall. Now, the, fascinating again, animals were not given to God, by God, to Adam, to man for food until after the flood. I don't know what they did in the interim, but specifically, God gave Plants, the plant kingdom, to man for food. He gave the plant kingdom to animals for food. And by the way, I don't have it up here, but in that new age, the consummation, in Isaiah, in Isaiah it says that these carnivores will once again eat the plant kingdom. They will no longer eat meat. So, what happened to this perfect world? How could it just turn upside down? What could possibly happen between the the end of the sixth day of creation and, and what would necessitate the coming of Christ into the world? Well, one way you might say it is He came to fix things, He came to reverse the curse. Everything has been affected by the curse that was put on the world from the beginning. And when you ask yourself the reason, why are there tears? Why is there mourning? Why is there crying and suffering and pain and death? Not only in every human heart, but also in the entire cosmos. And here's the reason. Look at point number three. I'm simply calling this the rise of the serpent. Now, this is some really interesting material But again, what we're looking for is why did Jesus come into the world? Because of this, because of the rise of the serpent. We can't know everything about all of the nuances and the details, but we can know a lot. We come to Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Now watch this. Now the serpent, that's all we know so far. When Moses wrote this, that's all he knew so far. The serpent was more crafty or subtle or deceptive. This can be a good word, but it usually, like in this case, is used in a bad sense. Than any other, watch this, beast of the field that the Lord God had made. So at this point, all we know is that it was a serpent. Okay? snake. And he spoke to the woman. Now, do do you have your Bible open? You you may not, but you see that 3-1 and then 3-6? Spoke to the woman. I added 3-6. Her husband was with her. So, here here is the picture that I believe picking up from chapter 2, verse 3. Remember chapter 2, verses 4 through the end of the chapter, is, is a parenthesis. It's, it's an explanation, a commentary on the creation of man. And let me just say this. Nothing in Scripture militates that this event was a week or a month or a year or a million years or a day after the sixth day. Nothing in Scripture tells us what it is. But here's what I believe. Just from the sequence of the events as they are spelled out in Scripture, it follows sequentially in the story that this happened on the seventh day. The day in which God rested from his work, The day that God blessed and set apart, sanctified. Now, there was nothing about doing any work on that day. But the very day that God was resting, the very day that he had blessed and set apart, I believe was the day when the serpent came in and tempted Eve. And she gave to her husband, Adam. And he ate, and that act plunged the world into sin. In fact, here's how I I see it. Again, you don't have to see it like this, but it's worthy of study, all right? You finish with chapter 2. If you're there, you can look at verse 24. The first wedding, all the animals were in attendance. They'd all combed their fur, wearing their best, you know. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall be one flesh. Of course they were together. They were one flesh. At that point, Adam was not off doing his own thing. Neither was his wife, the woman, Eve, later on. She is named. And I believe, I believe that they finished right there, The sixth day of creation, and when the seventh day started, they were on their way from the wedding to the reception at the tree of life to have their first meal. And because they were heading that direction, the middle of the garden, that's when the serpent came up to Eve. I don't know if they were talking. I hope they were just discovering each other, that kind of thing, and the serpent comes up and begins to interrupt their conversation and to talk to Eve. Now, this is interesting because the serpent appeared to both of them but spoke only to the woman. There's a lot there that we don't have time to unpack today. We'll get into more of that in 1 Timothy chapter 2. He spoke only to the woman. This serpent that was identified as one of the beasts that the Lord God has made. But we know him as something else, don't we? Do we? Yeah, we do. Because way later on in the last book of the Bible, almost the very last of it, the great dragon was thrown down. Hmm. Why was he thrown down? That ancient serpent, a direct reference to the garden who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. You can't get any more crystal clear than that who the identification of the serpent in the garden was. And so we see the rise of the serpent, the original murderer. All of these we've already discovered before that his job is to steal, kill, and destroy. He's out to take a life. And in doing that, all of, an Ad, all of Adam's and Eve's descendants would be born into death. Now, just a real quick aside, how, where, where, where did that come from? Again, a lot of this is mystery. Let me give you two passages that you probably already know. Now, these, these are written to, uh, they're, they're taunts. The prophet Isaiah and then Ezekiel wrote about the king of Babylon but this is, not the, this is not just the king of Babylon. Then in Ezekiel, we show this in a minute, the king of Tyre. This is not just the king of Tyre. How you have fallen from heaven, O day star. Does that harken back? The great dragon was thrown down. Hmm. You've fallen, O day star, son of the dawn. You've said in your heart, I will ascend. It gives an idea of what was happening. I don't know if it happened as as the serpent came up to Eve or if it happened prior to that. That's probable. I will ascend to heaven above the stars of, uh, of God. I will set my throne on high. The pride was coming through. I will sit on the mount of the assembly. He wanted to be over the church. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High God. Now, what was one of his temptations to Eve? you'll be like God. The same thing he fell into, same thing he tempted Eve by. Second thing, and this this is so revealing about the rise of of, of the serpent. How did he come to be? This was all pre-temptation of Eve, whether it was a minute or eons before. We, We simply do not know that you were the signet of perfection. I don't think he would say that about the king of Tyre. They said this was going way deeper than the king of Tyre. Full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in, the, you were in Eden, the garden of God. That just says it right there. Every precious stone was your covering, crafted in gold, were your settings and your engravings. You were an anointed guardian Cherub. Wow. Now let me stop right there. Does anything in from the very beginning of time to the very end, does anything ever happen by accident? Not if you believe in a sovereign God. So even there, now be very careful, God is never the author of sin. Even there, God had a plan, and his plan of redemption. For the rise of the serpent, let me go back to this, you were an anointed guardian cherub. And when I read that, I immediately thought of the verse in Hebrews chapter 1, that angels are sent out as ministering spirits to God's elect. And I had to wonder, it was either like that or maybe like in the book of Job where he had permission to go and tempt, but, but whatever it was, could it be that the serpent, that Satan, Lucifer, was sent as a guardian angel to guard them, but in the midst of his going, his heart became full of pride And he turned because he hated God so much because God was glorious and he couldn't attain the glory of God. And so then he hated the created beings of God. Why were we created? Why were we created? To glorify God. And it could have happened just like that that Lucifer, Satan, was sent as the guardian. And turned in the rise of the serpent. And he became the tempter to Eve. His weapon of choice, what was his weapon of choice? We've talked about this in the whole first chapter of 1 Timothy. What was his weapon of choice? Words. Words. A lie. A twist. a false doctrine, an idea that twists the truth and then becomes a flat-out lie. Have I said this before, that ideas have consequences? They really do. And, and young people, older people, ideas have consequences, and so that's why we need to be filled with the true doctrine of the Word of God. Now, there's a lot to say about this whole situation that I do not have time for here, but I can, I can tell you this, that when you see the picture of Adam and Eve, what, whatever, maybe they were just standing there. I don't think so. I think they were on their way to somewhere, and when we see what Satan does, the first thing that he did was violate the created order between man and woman. He did not approach the man to whom the command had been given. He approached the woman. Then the next thing we see is we see nothing from Adam. Why? I don't know. But here's what we do see, his silence and his passivity. And again, we don't have time to unpack all of that now, but let's learn a couple of things if we can. As we wrap this up, the rise of the serpent, you say, is this really a Christmas sermon? Yeah, y- you know what? <laughs> I'm wearing black today. You know, you know why? One of the reasons? It really, it really is symbolic. I thought of this as I put this on. It is symbolic of the fact that the the dark comes before the light. And if you don't have a read on why Christ really needed to come into the world to dispel the darkness, and we're going to talk about that for the next two weeks, then you need to get an understanding of that. But let's wrap up today and look, look at three things. These are three of my own applications growing out of what I've shared with you today. Three things that can help you from how uh, Satan came, the serpent came, and Eve responded. Here's the first thing. The woman rejected God's word as the sole authority for her life. Please don't make that mistake. The woman rejected God's word as the sole authority for her life. Now, get a read on this. In her mind, she wasn't turning her back on God. She just disconnected and discounted his word enough to give in to Satan's lie. She probably thought she was doing well in the conversation. I like what uh, Edward Welch said, the third quote down on on your worship guide. When a serpent comes across your path speaking lies, you should run from it or kill it. You shouldn't sit around for a friendly chat. Why? Because there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. And God had already given his word. It was crystal clear. Do not eat or this is the consequence. This is an application. Please, this is an application. You may think it's okay to tweak God's word and to take liberties. I saw a great quote on this. Getting too many notes wrong... Will change the song. Don't depend on what you think is right, depend on what God's Word says. Second, her response to Satan's twisted question focuses not on what God had given, but on what God had restricted. Wow. Let me say that again. Her response to Satan, the serpent's question, was to focus not on, on what God had given, which was everything except one thing, but what he did was cause her to focus on the one thing that was restricted. And the reason it was restricted was for their protection. Satan's greatest weapon against you You guys over here, all the rest, all the way around, his greatest weapon is discontent. And that's what we see a picture of. Rather than focusing on what God has given to you, the blessings, the life, and most of you are followers of Christ, that is the greatest blessing that you can ever have. The enemy still comes along, He uses the weapon of discontent. He will twist something from the Word of God to make you think that God is holding out on you and that God really does not have your best interests at heart. Again, I wrote. I I love when when commentators, they come up with a zinger, a way to say it, and I wrote it down. Satan's darts of discontent are his favorite weapons. Hear it well. Third thing, and the last thing, the serpent's big lie. This is so big. The serpent's big lie was denying the consequences of disobedience. Let me say that again. The serpent's big lie, the, the overarching lie, I believe, in this story of the temptation. was that he denied the consequences of disobedience. Now, to say to the woman, you will be like God, that might have been attractive. It, it would be like a, a preacher saying today, you need, to, you need to have self-realization. You need to become the best you you can be. That, that was the appeal, you will become like God but the out and out lie was you surely will not die. And he's using the same lie today over and over again. The wages of sin are death. That's, that's, that's just a truism. That is a biblical spiritual law. And at least for Eve, apparently, apparently it took away the appropriate fear of the consequence of sin out of the equation. Let me just show you a couple of verses. Write these down because they're good. The woman took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband. He ate therefore just as sin, this is from Romans, just as sin came into the world through one man and through sin uh, through, and death through sin and then Romans 6.23 the wages of sin is death and I'll guarantee in my life and probably in the lives of many many people in this congregation today that's been the big lie that he has gotten you with you can do this you can get away with it you surely will not die So the man took of the fruit and ate. And at that moment, he and the woman died spiritually. It would be 930 years before his body would die and he would return, as the Lord God said to him as a part of the curse, to the dust. But that's not the end of the story. Next week, the title of the sermon is Doomed. By a baby. and The rest of the verse, the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The baby was born to save. The baby was born to defeat the devil and death. Closing words, back to Kirstie Alley. At the end of a news program, it told a little bit about her. And then from a Barbara Walters interview years years before, Barbara Walters said, what is the best advice that anyone has ever given you? She said, my dad gave me the best advice. He said, always be honest. Always tell the truth. Is that good advice? Is that the best advice? Jan and I looked at each other. We were watching that part of the news program. And I said, the best advice that anyone ever gave me was repent of your sins and believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And she said, absolutely that is true. Folks, there are a lot of you who've taken that advice. There are some of you, surely, that in this room, room of this size, that have not. And I'm telling you, the best advice you could ever hear is repent of your sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who was born in a manger, laid in a manger, died on Calvary's cross, your sins, for sinners like us, and who is coming again to right everything. Father, I pray that today people would respond and repent and believe. I pray for those of us who know you, that we would walk daily in repentance and faith. Lord, we know our destination is sure, but... The fact that you want us to be holy like you are holy means that daily we're going to have to repent of any number of sins that we commit and then come back again to the cross. And thank you. Thank you for the salvation that you've given us through him. So, Father, I pray now that you would seal these words to our hearts, help us to think about these things as we anticipate the coming of the the Savior into the world, whose birth we celebrate, and we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.